Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Welcome to Payne on Politics. Even though it's cold in Boston, I would say that I'm here with these sunglasses for real logical reason. I'm here with Ken Grout, and the aura of Ken Grout makes me say, blinded by the light. Ken, welcome to Paint on Politics. Thank you very much, Dr. Payne. I appreciate it. Ken, when I think of all that you have done in terms of reviving the Southwick, all I would just like to say is gratitude, not only from me, but from Lady Oratory, Charles Wesley Emerson. We were all part of the first class here at Emerson. So can you tell me how much of a challenge it has been and why you see something that many people say is all about yesterday, why so currently today, thanks to you? Well, let me answer the second part of that question first. The historical significance, I think, of not just the Southwick, but the idea of oral presentation of literature, it's, it is the very foundation of what not only Emerson does, but certainly of what this department does. Every sports comp program, every marketing comp program, every polycom program is frankly has to be grounded in the idea of effective means of presentation. And so uh, taking that idea and bringing what could seem as a traditional, perhaps out of date approach to material and bringing it forward in today, all we're doing is supporting everything else that's happening. So. I think it's I think it's really important to continue it. As for the Southwick itself, when I first started here full time in 2020, we were in the midst of the pandemic, and you had said to me, "There's this thing called the Southwick Recital, and I would like you to work on reviving it." It had mm-hmm. sort of waned a little, and when I took a look at how it was structured, the first thing I wanted to do was involve students. And from my class, uh, CC 264, Oral Presentation of Literature, um, I truly believed that there were enough students who had completed that class who were, for lack of a better term, good enough to deliver literature in a recital format, that that's what I wanted to do. Plus, I'm enough of a marketing guy that I realize Students are not going to come to see me. They're not going to come to see you, no offense. They're going to come to see their sweet I think mates. they'll come to see you. Well, I appreciate them. that. Yes. But they will come to see their friends. And then from there, it builds out. So that's, that's the, um, the sort of idea of getting students involved, which traditionally had not been done. Since then, uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of work. It's a challenge. The challenges you are all. You seem to love it, though. I mean, you come energized. I do. I don't rehearsals know rehearsals on weekends. And I know. I don't get it either. It's it just brings me a lot of joy to see. A, it, it's always great to sort of oversee a big project and have it come to something. That's so satisfying. It's also satisfying for me that most of the students who are involved are pushing their own personal and professional boundaries by doing it. This is the kind of thing that theater majors do 
on a regular basis. And you've had theater majors come over. Absolutely. We have theater majors absolutely as part of this, but we have communication students and VMA students and journalism and BCE right. and, and every major, frankly, WLPs even. Yes. And I say even because uh, I was one, so I get it. Um, you tend to sit in the background, but all the majors, or at least most of the majors, have been represented in the performers, and that's huge. That's huge for me. And the idea of having this special event and putting this event together on what has become once every semester um, is, yeah, it's a lot. The challenges are predominantly logistics. You know, getting getting the space, hearing about things on time, getting the technology so we can stream and we can mm -hmm. produce, the limitations that come with that, right? And then the artistic challenges with the students, and and these are Emerson kids. They have ninety five thousand things that they've booked mostly at the same time, so we're always dealing with people's schedules and availability. But it's so far, you know, so far so good. Well, you know, when I think of the Southwick, of course, he was president of the of the college, mm -hmm. and he put together this recital series, which was the longest continuous recital series in the entire country, until abruptly it wasn't, but that was a political issue, not anything to do with the department's will. When I think about that, it was a vital part. When I was here, of course, before I came, you had June Mitchell, Mama June, for alums that are listening. You had Ken Cronell. You had Fran Lashoto, you had Bernie McPherson, you've had various people who've been a part of that. John right. Anderson's care, care, continued the tradition, Susie Sims Fletcher, who I think watches this religiously. Mm -hmm. So my question is, you had that tradition, which was, I think, a very, very important foundation, but you've really basically said, I've changed it a bit. We're going to feature, of course, faculty, we're going to feature performers, but we're really going to focus in on our most important product, and that is students. It it was a conscious decision I made to, um, A, to put butts in seats, but also because I wanted the students to realize that the skills that they learn in the classroom have, even at this level, a modest applicability. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that we would never do a, a single performer, whether it's a faculty member here or an alum or a distinguished guest, we would love to do that kind of thing. One of the, you asked me before about, you know, why I like doing it. One of the great things about it is that every semester is a, a new approach. And in the seven Southwicks I've done, each one has been different from the other. The most recent one we did was the most challenging, the most broad-based, and the least traditional. That was Edgar Allan Poe. That was the Edgar Allan Poe, the... Yes. Um, uh, the one we did the first of November, and you had puppets, which reminded me of Marcy Littlefield and Walt. You also had a band. All of a sudden, Owen Egan is popping up. Yes, we had a, a four-piece uh, jazz combo on stage: guitar, bass, and drums and keyboards. And we were lucky enough, in fact, to be joined by two uh, students from Berkeley, who musicians who sort of helped carry us through, and right. then uh, Professor Egan and. Um, Doug Quintal from Marketing Comms. So, I mean, we had uh, a great fun with that. We had uh, a, a small puppet show being done with five sort of stick puppets. It was so funny. And, uh, you know, we had some songs and some dance and some you name it. And 
all strung together with a narrative about Edgar Allan Poe. And frankly, one of the things that I've heard more about in response to that recital than anything is that people have said they learned so much about Edgar Allan Poe that they didn't know. And, I mean, that's the point. Well, Ken, my question, or I guess my point, especially to those who are listening, is they learn so much because you constantly are a scholar. You were at Edinburgh. You also went down and studied at the Poe Museum. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about going and doing that study and how that enabled you to do the story that was just, I think, so charismatic and so popular that you've been invited to be the kickoff performance at the President's uh, inaugural? Yeah, we're very honored about that. Um, when I went to the Poe Museum, the National Poe Museum is in Richmond. So when I, Richmond, Virginia, so when I went there, I was as, I would say, uninformed about Poe as the average person. I knew, you know, some of the, I knew the Telltale Heart, I knew the Raven, and I knew a little bit about his life, but nothing of great significance. And I uh, connected with the curator from the Poe Museum, and so I went down there, in fact, last spring break, and I spent four days sort of shadowing him, yes, asking a million questions, him giving me a million and one answers. You are inquisitive at times. Well, there, I, I like to know what I like to know. And I also, you know, I was, I was spending my uh, faculty funds, so I wanted to do it justice. So, but in, in you seriousness... You did get those back because sometimes they're held for a while. I, you, you've been paid? Good. I did get it back uh, this week, in fact. No, I did get it back <laughs> just fine. Um, it was really astonishing it, to learn everything that I learned. And the, I knew about Poe being born in Boston. I mean, obviously, if you're an Emerson, Emersonian, you know the current campus... The statue of Poe and the Raven is nearby. There's plaques and things if you keep your eyes open. And I had done a little research as to where he was born, etc. But I really didn't know how connected he was in his later years to Boston, to Lowell, specifically to Providence, Rhode Island. All of these places he had very um, specific connections to. And the fact that he accomplished what he accomplished and that he died at the age of 40 and that his death is still a mystery as to what took him from us. Forty years old, I didn't know he was that young. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing, and um, yeah. So it, the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And the Poe Museum in Richmond, first off, why is it in Richmond? Why isn't it in Boston? Yes. Why isn't it in Baltimore? Those are the two cities most commonly associated because born and died. But Richmond is actually the city where he spent the largest number of years just living. So. The Richmond Poe Museum is, it's really extraordinary. It's a, it's a great property. It's on uh, some outbuildings to an old house that's been completely converted. And they have an immense amount of stuff. And the, um, the time that I spent there, again, shadowing people and just asking questions was, was great. As for how the recital then became this melange of types that there's the song and there's the puppets and yes I have no idea dr. Payne I, I wish I knew. I wish is, I knew yes um, it it started one day in the shower frankly 
as all good things do. But it, it literally started one day when I was in the shower and I was thinking about opening the recital and how I wanted to open it. And I was thinking about, it just came to me, the idea of Poe encountering himself, right. the ghost of Poe encountering the corpse of Poe. And I'm in the shower and I start singing. Five Canons of Cicero, Inventio, there you go. <laughs> you know, there yes. it is. Yes. So, and from there, I, I, you know, I wound up singing a song that I thought, oh, that was pretty good. Right. I hope I can remember this when I get out of the shower. And I did. So. I think, Ken, what's exciting about me uh, coming to work and working with people like you. I mean, we're very happy the department's grown 88% since 2014. But you really push boundaries. I mean, a lot of people said, oh, you can't do that with the Southwick. One example that I think is very, very dear to me is last year I approached you and said, I'm going to be teaching a Kent State seminar. I would like for you to be involved in that. And you took that, that story, which of course still is a story that demands justice. You mm -hmm. had people like John Philo and Mary Vecchio watching it from afar. Uh, what are some of the challenges of doing a piece like that, where you have family members living, people who are there living, how do you deal with those types of dramatic license, historical accuracy, etc.? Storytelling is always a challenge when you when you think about you know things like cultural appropriation and story appropriation and who's telling what. So you have to be mindful of that. You also have to go into things, I think, with an open heart, and you have to be willing to to listen, to learn, and to to challenge people's ideals of things, but more than anything, is to try to understand. Because people feel the way they feel for a reason. And you need to understand what that reason is. So being sensitive to stories, and what we did in that case with the Kent State Southwick last uh, spring was we took this play that you had written and we distilled it a little bit just because you had written it as a as a full-length piece and, the, mm -hmm. and time prohibited and what I thought would be really interesting to do would be to ask students to submit poems that could potentially be read as part of the Southwick yes. sort of bookending right. the distillation of the play I thought we might get five poems and we got 40 right. we got 40 students who submitted material that they wrote and we had given them the um, articles about Kent State, articles about Jackson State, those tragedies, to use as inspiration. And they did. And we wound up selecting a dozen poems, and we gave students the opportunity to, to present their own material or to have somebody else present it. Yes. And it was a, a different approach, but it I felt really did something, again, to involve students, but to keep the focus in that instance on the historical significance of the piece and the historical significance of the events. Well, I think what I would tell you, and I, I might have mentioned this before, not only was John Philo very moved by it, and I think for many of us who go, well, that's almost 50 years, I guess it is 50 years, uh, has passed, but students still were able to pick up the tragedy, young people losing their lives. Russ Miller, who you know, of course, was Jeff Miller's brother, surprised me by being there that day. Yeah. And he said that performance was very uplifting, but it brought back all of that to him. But he could see how important it was for people today to continue to remember. So right. 
gratitude for me and I think all the Kent State family for Much you doing that. I'm going to switch a bit because if there's another blinding ray of Ken oh, Swope. No. Uh, not Ken Swope, but Ken Graff. Ken Swope is another incredible artist that I know. Tell me about Edinburgh because I think you came mm -hmm. back very refreshed with some ideas of what we might be doing here. What did Absolutely. you do and what are some new ideas that Ken brings to Emerson? Well, um, Edinburgh, Scotland, which pronounced Edinburgh, by yes. the way, by the locals. That was yes. the first thing I okay. learned. Sorry, Sebastian. That's yeah. Edinburgh. That's right. He was the St. Andrews guy. So, um, Edinburgh has the largest fringe festival in the world. And fringe festivals are festivals that are set up. They're, they are in the United States. They tend to be in more secondary markets. For example, Providence has uh, a pretty healthy fringe festival. But um, they are theatrical events where different kinds of shows are presented and they're fringe meaning they're not well funded they're not sort of produced yeah. and but they're at various stages of development and so I went to investigate this and to think about it as some sort of connection for the work that we're doing in the Southwick some sort of connection to the work that I do on the performative end of the communication studies um, spectrum and it was just remarkable it was remarkable I mean I I traveled alone I went alone I was a little bit off you know how am I gonna figure all this out and and you know you download an app and you get some tickets and all of a sudden I saw 20 shows in six days mm -hmm. and I mean the shows ranged from a piece that I come to find out actually moved from fringe to the West End last in the in the fall I right. saw it and said this is this is wonderful yes all the way to a show about um, bananas where the gentleman it was a one-person show where he was dressed as a banana with a banana costume and a prominent yellow thong and what year were they at Emerson <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like the typical Emersonian, <laughs> at least in the theater it, formative area. It could it could have done well here. So uh, th that is to say that there is a sense of bravery in the performances and the choices that the individuals involved make that is frankly infectious, and it leads one. It led me to think I can do whatever I want because it's worth it to start somewhere to move forward. One of the things that we do and one of the things that I'm constantly after my students about is to get out of your head. Just do something. Just try it. Commit to something. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Everything works up here. Everything's perfect up here. You've got to get it out so that you can see, can you make better choices? And Edinburgh was just uh, such a great opportunity and it, it quite frankly Again, this is the event guy, I guess, but it made me think, why isn't Emerson doing something like this? Why isn't there a Boston French that's an Emerson French? Yes. You know? And then I needed to take a long nap and, you know, <laughs> get serious because it, it logistically would be a nightmare, I'm certain. Um, Emerson would support it, but... Uh, Listen, if Jay is listening, President Bernhardt, how about a Fringe, Emerson French Festival? Ken Grout is all excited about this. It would be, quite frankly... It is exactly the kind of thing that Emerson students do. I mean, you, so often we see short films, short plays, uh, individual stand-up pieces that the students here are doing, and it is just that. 
I mean, the, and the Fringe Festival at Edinburgh has its own sort of lifeblood. It's 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 a well it's a well-renowned uh, festival, the biggest in the world, and artists like Lin Manuel Miranda and Phoebe Waller Bridge and artists who have gone on to great fame and acclaim right. got their start there. Yes. They were, you know, they were out hawking tickets and saying here, you know, bussing flyers. So that was a great way to to spend a week and to get to get invigorated with the possibility of ideas. I think and what's great to me is when I go to alumni weekends and I talk to people what do you remember most? As I said, when we began, they always talk about the Southwicks. Sometimes they'll say it was tedious, you know, it went on for a long time, mm. but I remember how articulate uh, Ken Cornell was when he was doing classical pieces. What really is exciting for me in my 40th year at Emerson is to see you revive that tradition, which is such a vital characteristic of what we do. And I think as we prepare for the new Alumni Weekend with President Bernhardt, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that you will either perform or that we'll have at least a place where people can stop by and share their mm -hmm. memories. Well, I appreciate it, and let me just say that, um, and this is, this is not the Mutual Admiration Society, although you know I adore you, but quite frankly, if it weren't for your support, I don't know that, it would, that I would have been able to do what I've done because you have given me a sense that there is no wrong. You have given me a sense that I can do, obviously within reason, what I want to do. And every time I've come to you and said, I'm thinking about doing this, does it feel like it's too far? You've said, if you think it's a good idea, then it's a good idea. So thank you for that. Ken, one of the exciting parts about having you on staff and being such a mentor for so many people is, in addition to all that you put in at the Southwick and you continue the oral tradition performance studies, you also are a very well-known writer and critic of what's going on in the real media. You were just yours, and Owen's piece was just featured on CNN. That was, yes. Uh, Professor Egan and I had done a study together relating to sexism in the Academy Awards. And at a 20,000-foot overview, where the study began was that I realized that it was more common for men in leading roles to be awarded an Oscar for Best Actor in a film that itself won Best Picture than for a woman to win Best Actress in a film that won Best Picture. And once I sort of made that connection, I started looking historically at, well, how much more common was it? And it was two to one. Yes. And from there beget the study. And in this particular year where... Uh, there's been a lot of focus on Barbie, the film Barbie, and the lack of a nomination for its director, Greta Gerwig, the lack of a nomination for its leading lady, Margot Robbie, and uh, there's been a lot of focus on that, so I've been contacted to get my thoughts on it, if you will. Right. So what else are you studying in addition to the Barbie phenomenon and some of these issues that you've raised with regard to the Academy? What's next in terms of your academic pursuits? Well, I, interestingly enough, one thing that came about this year is in relation to responding to Barbie, I discovered something else that I happened to find very telling and fascinating. So uh, without getting into the weeds too much, the first woman who won the Oscar for Best Director won what is now 15 years ago. And that what was the Catherine movie? Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. Oh, yes, yes. 
in the 15 years, including that as year one, and this is year 15, and assuming that Christopher Nolan wins Best Director this year for Oppenheimer, which is, you know, less than even money, um, in that 15-year period, four and a half of the directors who've won the Oscar right. have been white men. And I say four and a half because last year the Daniels, one was a uh, white man, one was an Asian man. In the 15 years before Catherine Bigelow won, 14 of the 15 Oscars for Best Director went to a white man. Right. The 15th went to Ang Lee. Yes. So it's gone from 14 to four and a half. Is that to say, oh great, there's no more sexism? Of course not. But it is to say that there has been a shift. There has been a shift because you've had a number of Hispanic Latin directors. You've had several uh, women directors now uh, who have won and Asian directors. But the question of racism in that same arena, the number of black directors who have won during this past 15 year chunk yes. is zero. Right. And in fact, only five have been nominated. So to me, just in the course of looking at the data so that I was sure I was up to date and accurate, yes. Yes. I realized the number of extraordinary films and filmmakers that haven't been honored. And so that really is where my thinking is right now about let's try to move this issue forward because again, it's not that the issue of sexism in the Oscars is, is is not a concern anymore, of course not. But it is to say, let's update the data and let's maybe tweak the lens just a little to look at what's really going on. And what's really going on is a dearth of black filmmakers and their stories showing up in the Oscar for Best Director. Well, what I would say is you make it exciting to come each and every day to work. and. I think for those people, I would say the Southwicks of the past feel very proud of the direction that Absolutely. you're taking them now. Absolutely. So Ken Grauf, I will once again put on my glasses and thank you for being on Pain on Politics because the rays as well as the energy are blinding and I think give us a new pathway for the Southwicks at Emerson. Thank you, Pain on Politics, Emerson College. It's cold here, but Ken, you always keep it warm with that creativity. Thank you. Until the next time, see you.